All right, hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Can We Rant? I am your host, Ryan Francis, and it looks like my sound program has just stopped working on me. So we're going to keep talking through and hope that it's recording, and it looks like it is. Welcome to episode 36 of the podcast. Glad that you're here. Uh, To some of you, I apologize. I promised uh, what I referred to as a mile-high podcast. I was supposed to be flying with a friend of mine, but... When family comes to town, family comes first. And I want to introduce you to the youngest of my uncles, my Uncle Matt. Uncle Matt, say hello to everybody. I'll tell you what, Ryan. Not only am I the youngest of the uncles, but I think I'm probably the only uncle that knows what dubstep is. That intro was lit. I think so. You're probably the only uncle I have that would say lit. I was waiting for the drop, and my ears started bleeding. Right there at the last minute. Good, good. That means it was uh, put together well. I can't take full credit for that. Uh, I kind of ripped it from the internet somewhere for free. Strong. Nice. Uh, Uncle Matt, why don't you tell all the listeners out there in the world about yourself? Tell us what you want us to know. Well, first of all, it should be noted if you've been listening to the first 35 of these podcasts that I knew Ryan when he was two or three minutes old. So my nephew, Ryan, uh, put a little embarrassment on him real quick. Nice. I'm excited. He was the first of my nephews, and he is now a grown man. Uh, so it's so cool to see you down here with family, Ryan. It's such a cool time to, uh, to be together. Um, I am from Syracuse, New York originally, and now I'm living in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, I've been there for 20 20- and a half years, believe it or not. So wow. just celebrated my 20th year anniversary with the Raleigh Police Department, where I work. And uh, I've spent 10 years as a, as a street cop and then 10 years on our full-time SWAT team. Um, and really, most importantly, is, is my family up here. So cool to come and see everybody. My mom and dad live up here in Syracuse, New York, along with my two sisters, one of whom Ryan's really near and dear to. She happens to be my mother. She happens to be your mama. (laughs) And um, so it's just so good to see you, man. Nice, nice. Good stuff. All right, so let's dive right into it. Uh, You said you were going to embarrass me. You didn't really. Do you have any good embarrassing stories from, I don't know, the time before I would have recollection? Did I do any? Did I have like any Gosh. weird quirks? Did I do anything really crazy or dumb when I was a kid? No, I don't know that you did anything crazy or dumb. You have gone through some pretty cool stages along the way. Um, you know, it's really, really interesting to look at your pictures growing up along the way because there are times <laughs> when I pictures and I feel like I'm looking at a, at a picture of me. Uh, um, you and I have had the same goofy haircuts along the way. I mean. We have had uh, some of the same funny, you know, grade school pictures along the way. But, um, but gosh, I can't it think of anything. It should be noted that on a regular basis, someone who knew my Uncle Matt when he was younger or even now and knows me now or in my teenage years, cons- I consistently got from that person, you know, you look just like your Uncle Matt. Are you sure you're not Matthew? Like, yeah. The man was like in his, what, you were... How old were you when I was born? Like, nineteen, twenty? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. 
Yeah, the man's 20 years older than me. I guarantee you that I'm not him. Yeah, it is, uh, it's wild to look at those picks and see how similar you and I look. It's really terrifying, Dang, uh, but kind of awesome. I mean, hey, I think we're uh, two good-looking guys. we got some good Van Antwerp jeans. There you go. That's what we hope for. That is. I'll tell you right now, once you hit 41, you're not going to get any better looking. So try to do what you can do along the way because it's all downhill from here. Hey, you know what? If I'm still going uphill at 41, I'm pretty pumped. <laughs> <laughs> Or if I'm going uphill until I reach 41, that's not a bad age to to That's not a bad age. It's not a bad age. That's not bad at all. So you said you've been a cop with the Raleigh Police Department for like 20 years. Um, First of all, thank you. Thanks for for serving as a police officer, even though you don't serve in my area. I think that's awesome. Um, That's my pleasure. Hey, awesome. Tell me, um, what what made you want to become a police officer? How did that all begin? I guess we'll kind of go this way. Yeah, so it's crazy, you know, growing up here in Syracuse, New York, um, being the youngest of five kids in a family where nobody was a police officer with the exception of uh, our cousin Sean, um, you know, it wasn't like I grew up sort of destined to be a police officer because my my dad was a cop or my dad's dad was a cop, Um, really coming from a, a whole family full of educators I was sort of flying solo on that one. Um, But Ryan, from the time I was probably 15 years old, I had completely dedicated my thought process to uh, law enforcement, kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do. And as a matter of fact, um, as a young kid, 17, 18, 19 years old, I spent hundreds of hours uh, in a police car as a ride-along with the Syracuse Police Department, um, and I was doing that without an internship. So I was actually doing that with friends of mine who were police officers in Syracuse who were kind enough to uh, to let me occupy their passenger seat. And I really did get to go on, you know, hundreds of different kinds of calls and different types of incidents. So I really knew from the time that it was really a viable option for me to to take a test and become a police officer, that it was something that I wanted to do. And I, and I understood what I was getting into. I think that was another big piece. That's great. So, um, what took you to Raleigh? Why, why not stick around in Syracuse? So, you know what, that's a, it's a really interesting, uh, turn of events. So in 1996, I took, what is the uh, New York State Civil Service Test for law enforcement officer here in the uh, county of Onondaga. And uh, at that time, the test was being scored in five-point increments. So you could either make a 75, an 85, all the way up to 100. And, uh, and folks were taking that test over and over and over again to try to pass it. Um, and I was fortunate enough, the first time that I took that test, I did some preparatory work. The first time I took the test, I scored a 95. So I thought, oh, man, I'm in. You know, this will be perfect. I'm I'm young. This is a young man's game. I'm going to be able to start, you know, as an entry-level police officer as a 21-year-old kid. And, um, and the reality of it is I went from that stage through to the next stage, which was the uh, physical exam. And when I went to that physical exam, I had been told ahead of time, like, hey, man, there's minimum standards here, so don't don't try to reach for the sky. We just need you to, to, to hit these minimum standards along the way 
because the last part of that physical test is a mile and a half run, and they said that's the hardest part. It's the part that you really need to score well on. And so in the beginning, you know, don't blow it out. You know what I mean? So it turned out that at that time, for my age group, you had to do a certain number of push-ups in a minute, you had to do a certain number of sit-ups in a minute, and then you had to qualify with this mile-and-a-half run in a certain amount of time. And I will never forget, I certainly don't remember what the number of push-ups was, and I couldn't tell you what the mile-and-a-half time was, but I can definitely tell you that the sit-up number was 39. That's very specific. 39 sit-ups in a minute. I'll tell you why I remember that. Because I started with push-ups, and I rocked through the number of push-ups that I was supposed to do, and once I had met that minimum number, I stopped. I had about 15 or 20 seconds left. I looked at the instructor, and, and she looked at me, and she kind of gave me a thumbs up, like, yeah, that's, that's the right thing to do. Stop short. Save yourself for this run. So then it came to the sit-up portion. And I did just the same thing. I remember sitting up 36, 37, 38, 39, and then I laid back down, and I had about 15 seconds left, so I just laid there thinking, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on this run. I'm really going to save myself. And I heard the timer ticking down, three, two, one, and I sat up, and she looked at me as if to say, like, what are you doing, man? And I said kind of looked at her and I said, I'm good, right? She goes, no, that was 38. No way. Well, she had counted aloud to the number 39. And so in that moment, there were like two thoughts in my mind. Like the first thought in my mind was, she's one of the instructors for the, for the police department. Clearly she's just screwing with me. You know, I'm the new rookie. She's just got to be messing with me. And, uh, and then the second thought that I had was, I can't believe that that just happened <laughs> because it was, the, you know, the reality of that was sinking in that no matter whether I thought it was fair or not, no matter how, you know, equitable I thought it was, that's what she was sticking with. And, uh, and so it was a kind of a devastating moment for me. Nice. Um, so at that time I had a chance to, um, I had a chance to really do some self-reflection about, you know, what was important right at that moment. What was I going to do now? And, uh, and so I had to do some, some searching. That was a crushing blow for me. Cause I had really, you know, like I said, from the time I was 15 years old, I knew, I knew this path I wanted to take. And so, so it was at that time, um, I visited a friend of mine who lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, who was actually going through, their police academy there, and he said, man, just come down here and take a look at, uh, at the police department. I think you're going to be, I think you're going to be impressed by what they have going on. We have our own full-time police academy, and uh, he said, I think it's going to be something you'll enjoy. And so I came down, I looked at it, I got recruited, and within months I was um, going down there to, to interview and go through sort of all the same processes I went through here. Gotcha. Um, so that's kind of how that shook out from north to south. Interesting. That's kind of cool. So it was just you had a friend connection, and he said, come check it out, and you did. And that was kind of the end of that's the rest of the story, basically. Yeah, that's it. You made sure you got all those sit-ups in. Yeah, the next time I, I like, really blew it out, you know what I mean? Did like, you just did you no... just take it to the end of the time and just 
get as many as you could? Yeah, and quite honestly, because of the way that they ran the testing in the Raleigh Police Department is certainly much different than the way it was done here. And so you needed to maximize at every level, and there was really no room to sandbag it on the way up. There was no strategizing it, and uh, and that's more my style anyway. And so, um, so that's how I went with it. Absolutely, that's turned awesome. Out, turned out okay. Nice, that's great. So you've been serving with the Raleigh Police for 20 years, 20 and a half years. Um, you said you were a beat cop, you were a street cop for like 10 years of that. And then, um, you know, I know you've done some training, some teaching in the academy. You've worked with the Selective Enforcement Unit and whatnot. So you were able to kind of bring in some of that um, that educational history in the family to your professional career, which I think is kind of interesting. How did you uh, end up working with the with, with the academy? How did that all so, transpire? You know, one of the things that, uh, yeah, one of the things that has been ingrained in me is this thought process that the moment that you know, in any profession, the moment that you think you've arrived, the moment that uh, that you stop training, and the moment that you really think that you've figured much of anything out, that that would would be the moment that you begin to stagnate. And, uh, and so I've always believed that I was, that was instilled in me from the time, you know, just learning that from my dad and then also learning that from mentors that I had in the police academy. Um, and so as I finished the academy and started on the road, you know, working through field training and then even having a chance to serve as, a, as one of our training officers at our full-time academy, my challenge to myself was to continue to just to try to better that game all the way through, whether it was physical, uh, physical training or firearms or, um, or any of the facets of, of law enforcement. And then just really in honing my own skills to really just challenge myself to, to be able to pass those skills on to somebody else and, uh, and do what I could do to make someone else better. And, And really that's kind of, that has been, Gosh, as of late and as of probably the last six or seven years, that has been one of the main focuses of what I've tried to do is to just to be able to uh, to pass that mantle so that I'm able to, to try to leave things better than I found them. Awesome. That's cool. So uh, in your in your 20 years as, as a cop so far, what is what have been some of the highlights, uh, whether they're specific instances or seasons of your career? Uh, what has stood out to you as a couple things that you can you can kind of look at and say, you know what, this was you know, this was awesome. This was a real blessing to be a part of or even, yo, this was just the coolest freaking thing that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, there been. Gosh, it's so funny. People will ask me, you know, friends of mine will say sort of with this, with this expectation that I've got this mental Rolodex of of the highs and lows and that they are sort of in chronological order that I could just kind of hop from one thing to the next and go story to story. It's funny um, that you ask that because sometimes those stories will pop up in a moment where I'm just riding through town and I'm like, oh, man, I remember when this happened, like <laughs> right at this spot. And sometimes it's the craziest thing Um and then at other times, uh, something will, will pop into my head because of a recent event. Um, I can tell you, really going back just this past week, I had a really cool opportunity to, um, to teach and train some guys who are SWAT officers down in, uh, in North, South Carolina, and Georgia. And I had a chance to work with some guys, 23 of them, who um, some of them were sort of 
beginning SWAT officer, uh, officers, SWAT operators, and some of them were um, seasoned guys, you know, people that have been doing this for a little while. But, uh, but there were a few of them who a couple of days after leaving that class, so the 29th is when I finished that class, and here we are. Gosh, what's today's date? Today's um, the 4th of October. Yeah, so this is uh, two days after the class. Um, four of the guys who were engaged in this class out of six, four of those six guys who worked in this particular area uh, were pinned down by a suspect who was firing a rifle at them. And, um, and they just wrote a letter, which I read this morning to say, Hey, were it not for the training that we had received over the last several days, we wouldn't have had, you know, uh, things to reflect on and think about in that moment. They were really thankful for the training that they got. And so, you know, those are the moments when it becomes worth it. It becomes worthwhile because instead of just, uh, thinking that, you know, gosh, we're just droning on and, and training for the big one and the big one never comes. You know, for some of these guys, man, the big one the big one comes and it comes really quickly after um, after some meaningful training. And so so for me, just recently, that was one that uh, that has kind of resonated with me even over the last even last couple couple of days. That's cool. That's awesome. It's it's definitely cool to see the the fruits of your labor paying off, especially in a very tangible way in that you know, these guys were able to protect themselves and those around them better. Thanks to, th- in part, thanks to the work you did training them. I think that's really neat. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. You know, what's so cool about, uh, about that is that the class that I was teaching this last week, I was actually co-teaching with one of the guys who is a huge mentor to me. So I was, um, sort of teaching under his wing and sort of under the cloak of, um, uh, of some of the the teaching that he provides. And so it was really neat to be able to have that experience with someone who from the time I was a very, very young cop was looking out for me. And now we are having that chance to do that very same thing for a young kid who's maybe your age, you know, who's coming into the police department. And, uh, and it's funny. I, I, I find myself, it really does. It makes me feel super old. I find myself referring to, a 24 year old person as a kid and here I'm only 41. It's not like I'm super old just yet. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, it is such a cool, uh, cool thing to be able to pass that on. And that's, um, that hopefully that would be the legacy that, that I'll be able to leave. That's awesome. Well, um, so typically this, this podcast tends towards the tends towards the comical, the comical, uh, tries, we try, try to keep it as kind of a, a relief from the what's what's going on in the world the real things in the world but i think yeah, um since i've got you on the line i think we would be remiss not to uh not to talk about what happened sunday night um uh, just to kind of get the because we get a lot of opinions you know whether we're on twitter facebook you know watching late night television listening to whoever on the radio we get all kinds of takes from people that we're not really connected to uh i was just wondering if you had just like a you know even if it's just like a 30 second take on um the the just the terrible evil shooting that happened in vegas uh sunday night going into uh monday morning oh man i tell you words for me words cannot describe the anger that that makes me feel i don't know that i'm any different than anybody else in that regard uh i you know i still remember 
it's, it's, it's one of those deals where you remember where you were at on 9-11, you know, if you were old enough to remember it. Um, I will always remember where I was at when I found that news out uh, the other night. And the thought process that goes through my mind uh, is that, you know, first and foremost, it is tragic. And, and my thoughts and my prayers are with all of those families and those people who suffered and with the, the responders in that situation who will forever, just like all of the other citizens there, live with um, the thoughts of, of what they saw and the carnage that they saw. It's just tragic. Um, and at the same time, I see how quickly uh, it comes to a political boil. And, you know, that becomes frustrating, regardless of which side of the fence you're on there politically. It just seems to me like there should be the time that it takes to uh, to give these families the time that they need to grieve and uh, and for us to rally around them, first and foremost. That, that's my initial thought about that is that it is, you know, it is a situation that's so terrible and so tragic, and yet um, the time for playing politics is is certainly not now. You know, the time for, for, for all of that may come sometime down the road, but that, uh, that what these folks need now and what our, what our country needs now in the aftermath of a scenario like that is to have empathy for one another and to have sympathy for one another and to look out for your fellow man. And, uh, you know, that's a, that seems, seems almost to be a lost art for some folks. Yeah. We're, de- we're definitely in a climate where it's very, you know, very much a kind of quick to judge, slow to listen. And I think that oftentimes you'll see, I mean, at least I've seen a, a lot of, um, you know, I'm scrolling through Twitter. That's where I get it. You know, you see a lot of news and a lot of updates and things like that. And you can get a lot of quick, just raw opinions and reactions on that. And I've seen a ton of people saying, saying just what you said about, you know, let's not make it political. Let's not make it political. But then they continue with the, but this, this, and this should happen. And like you said, it's on both sides of the aisle, whether it's, you know, someone calling for, for stricter gun, stricter gun laws or someone saying, Hey, you know this guy got had access to his guns legally. So what? What more do you want? And you know the we could go back and forth on that on that discussion. And I don't know if this is really the time or the place, but I think um, we you know we ought to be mindful that people people lost lives, people lost fathers, people lost sons, people lost mothers, they lost daughters, um, they lost brothers and sisters, and. Yeah. Um, I think we, we there needs to be that we need to allow time to mourn and we need to allow time to reflect and say, hey, this was a terrible, evil action. We need to be heartbroken over this. I think we've also gotten kind of uh, desensitized to it in a way. You know, not not long ago we had uh, the shooting in the or heartbreaking and tragic, um, and we also have natural disasters all over where people are getting getting hurt, getting killed, and being put in these terrible predicaments. Um, and it seems like it's a very quick first reaction to just to just make it really political. Um, well, I tell you, if it, if it doesn't paint any other picture, it should paint the resolve of the American people and how amen. and how re- and how resilient we are, and just how quickly folks in that scenario acted to help one another and to take a hand of somebody that they did not know. Uh, you know. In a, in a time when we are 
seeing folks who are disgruntled and feeling victimized by uh, some facet of American society and feeling as though they are being oppressed, uh, certainly what we can see in, in this particular event is that folks weren't oppressing one another. They were lifting each other up. They were dragging each other by their arms. They were helping one another to what they thought was cover or what they thought was safety. And, uh, and man, that, that to me speaks volumes over a victim mentality that says, Oh, somebody's, you know, picking on me and I just don't like the way I'm being talked to right now. I mean, we've got, we've gotten so far away from, from really what is the American spirit and the American resolve to help one another. And, uh, and how about making that newsworthy? You know, absolutely. So, so that's my that's my two cents on that. I think that's good. I think that's a great take. I think that keeping the focus on, you know, mourning and grieving with those who are in pain is important. And I think also looking at what we've learned, the fact that hey, this terrible thing happened, but we came together, and that's that's what America is all about: is taking people who are in, you know, terrible situations and coming together for the better of the whole. And I think that's great. Absolutely right. All right. So we're going to totally change gears to something that is entirely non-related, but uh, particularly pertains to you and I specifically within our family. Uh, And that is the topic of tattoos. Now, since I was a kid, I've always thought, you know, I want a tattoo. When I was 14, I had this terrible idea that I wanted to get a a flaming bass clef on my forearm because I thought that would look super cool. Uh, I thought for sure you were going to say a tattoo of your Uncle Matt. Ah, no, (laughs) no, not yet. Like a neck tat, you know what I mean? No, maybe not. One of these days, maybe I'll get like a Sailor Jerry, (laughs) uh, Matt Van Antwerp boxer, like a Popeye the Sailor Man kind of thing, but with your face. What if it happened? Well, I mean, you can keep keep the flames if you want to. Yeah, no, just have, yeah, wrap them in flames. There we go. Um, So you really broke the ice in the family when it came to tattoos. I remember uh, when you joined... um, your your team uh your SWAT team down in Raleigh um they all had you know the tattoo of the insignia and all that and you had no one in our family had had tattoos that I'm aware of and then you go out and you get this giant piece on your shoulder and bicep and it looks great but I remember Nana the first time she saw it she was like poking it to see if it was real oh man how, how did that how did that conversation go over when you told your mother that you had gotten a tattoo? You know what? Had I not been at the age where she really could not possibly say anything, I think that she would have probably scolded me about it and shaken <laughs> her head and, and and like used my middle name, you know, Matthew, Paul. I think it would have been one of those deals. But uh, you know what? She was a good sport about it. And I think probably the biggest thing that, that – made a difference to her when it came to that was that she knew what it meant to me. So our unit was formed in uh, 1974. And since that time, guys who have been a part of our unit have this same tattoo and it's essentially in the same place and it's got the same emblem and the same lettering and this, you know, all of the same things, uh, same elements. And so what that translates to is that there's a bunch of really old dudes walking around Raleigh with uh with you know 
loose skin on their arms now because they're super old and they've still got this same tattoo. That's awesome. Uh, but they'll still give you like a flex off if you, if you look at them. Oh, no doubt. Uh, no doubt. But, uh, but it's cool because there's some tradition there and, um, and the way that it works with, uh, with our guys on our unit is that, you know, you're not really eligible to go and get that, that piece of, uh, art on your body until, you sort of have been okayed by your peers to do so. And, uh, and it becomes a celebratory thing. Guys go out, you know, with each other to the tattoo shop to go watch it be done. And so there's some solidarity there. And, uh, so yeah, it's the first and, and likely only tattoo that I will ever have. But, um, but yeah, I guess I broke the ice on that for our family. You definitely did. You swung the door wide open because I came through as soon as I graduated from college and got a tattoo, and then I think it was that was June. So then I think it was till November of that year. And then I got another one. And then I, December or October of not even December, maybe October, September of the following year, I got two more. Um, so you, you really swung that door wide open. And hey, what have you got now, man? You got definitely what th- four now i've got four, four now i've got f- i don't think you I, so i was just with you and i should have shown you what i have because i don't think you've seen me since i got my two most recent uh but i'll have to find you on on friday or something but so now i've got a piece on my calf um for those of you who haven't seen it go check out my instagram and scroll way back um june 2nd of 2015 is where you're going to find my first that's a calf piece uh it's like a an impressionist painting kind of thing uh, it's a man standing on a cliff with waves crashing against it. And the idea is for that to be a visualization of on Christ the solid rock I stand. Uh, Very cool. I, I went into my tattooing experience saying that I wanted my first tattoo to be meaningful. And then after that, um, I you know I kind of want to do it for the art of it. Um, and then there was a day in, I think it's October. I think it was October of that year where... Uh, this tattoo shop in town was doing a discount tattoo day and they had a sheet of flash tattoos uh, and it was 40 bucks. It was a fundraiser for the odd fellows. It's a, a men's fraternal organization. They do a lot of good um, community engagement work and whatnot in the area. So they, uh, so it was 40 bucks for this tattoo. And I saw they had this little, they had this tattoo. It's, you know, probably three inches square. If you were to take up t- the total area, it says death before decaf in a, in a coffee mug. And so I told a buddy, I told a friend of mine, and she and I were going to go together. I said, hey, Miranda, you know, let's get this. She was going to get something else, this leaf or something. Uh, She bailed on me the day of. So I called up another one of my buddies. I was like, hey, I'm going to get a $40 tattoo. This is what I'm getting. You want to come with me and maybe get something? He's like, yeah, absolutely. So he and I actually ended up getting the exact same tattoo. Uh, And from there sprung the idea of me doing a lower half sleeve of coffee-themed tattoos. Um, so then I continued and I got a portafilter with a coffee branch behind it. If you don't know, um, any coffee hardware, that's the piece of a, um, of an espresso machine that you put the ground espresso into and then you put it, you rack it up into the machine. Um, so there's that. And then there's a coffee branch with like the leaves and the cherries and the flower and everything. Um, and that one was really cool because I went into the artist and I told them, I was like, Hey, you know, I want a portafilter tattoo, explain to him what it was. And he goes, all right, well, uh, and he's the one who did my death before decaf tattoo. I thought he did a really good job, so I went back to him. He said, so uh, what if we add some, like, artistic flourishes to it? I was like, you know, what, what are you thinking? He said, well, how about some coffee? I was like, well, I don't really want just, like, liquid coffee. He goes, well, what about, like, a branch? What does a coffee branch look like? So I talked him through it, 
And then he looked up some photos. I came back in two weeks later, and he had this sweet outline drawn. I was like, this is great. Let's go. So I sat down, and he started doing He pulled the outline about an hour and a half, maybe an hour in, probably an hour and a half in. He had the outline done. He goes, yeah, so I didn't put any color in the drawing. Do you want to do black and gray? Do you want to do it color? I was like, I think it looks sweet with color. And he's like, all right, do you want me to like, you know, sketch out the color ahead of time for you so you can see what it looks like? I was like, no, just do it. So this man just freehanded color onto my arm and into my skin. And it turned that out is too cool. It turned out awesome. And I loved it. I thought um, you were going to tell me you got flames on that one, no, too. No, no flames yet. No we can f- add flames later, right? Let's go, man. We'll go. You know what? We'll make like a little like a bracelet-style tattoo that's just flames right. coming up from my wrist. Twinsies. Yes, let's do it. You and me. It, it'll be great. And then I got uh, some text on my left bicep. Uh, it was a saying that my yaya, my grandmother on my dad's side, used to tell us when we were kids. Um, I, I never get sick of telling the story. So when we were kids, she would say, uh, which is, I love you so much, sugar and honey, but the sentiment is you're sweet like sugar and honey. So I got in Greek, in my dad's handwriting, sugar and honey tattooed on my left arm. Too cool, man. And I love it. And I'm so, I haven't been tattooed since last October and November, and I'm ready to get tattooed again. I'm yeah. getting there. I'll tell you what I hate to I hate to start to be the flow master, but since uh, since you were just talking about your yaya, I have a question for you. Go ahead, fire away. I love it. So when I'm home, you know that I always think of Nana and yeah. uh, one of one of the best friends I've ever had. Um, so my grandmother uh, on my mom's side, who has been such a mentor to all of us and just such an example of uh, who the Lord is to us and and to her. And so my question for you is, what do you remember of Nana? What are your memories of her as you were growing up? Because I know you were much younger when she passed away uh, than I was. Do you have recollection of her? Tons. Nana died uh, May 15th of 2001. I remember that vividly. Um, I don't know why I remember the date so specifically. I know that she died before 9-11 happened. So that's kind of how I remember the year. uh, Because I remember thinking how devastated she would have been had she been alive to see 9-11 happen um but nana was my was my absolute best friend i i remember uh she and i so um my grandparents your parents uh my nana and grandpa lived in this house that my grandpa built with his bare hands i lived in that house for 50 years uh next door was i think it was grandpa's parents house at one point and then Nana moved into the house, uh, which is my Nana, my grandmother's parent, mother and father moved into that house. Now, uh, my great-grandfather died before I was born, but Nana and I were great friends. And so she lived right next door. So she used to come over when I was a kid and she would say, Brian, let's walk the plantation, meaning let's just walk around the property. And we would take these big circular walks around Nana and Grandpa's house and then around her house and her property and then I had a great uncle and aunt who lived the next house over, and they had, um, they had a little farm. Uncle, uh, the Kingsburys, um, you know, Uncle Cliff had a farm, and we would walk through. We'd pick tomatoes right off the vine and eat them like apples together. 
Oh man, I remember Nana so well. She was the greatest. That is the number one thing I'm looking number two thing I'm looking forward to about going to heaven. Obviously first is like seeing God and being like, Sup, this is awesome. Um and number two <laughs> is seeing Nana again and, and giving her a big hug because that woman to this day, I mean, continues to inspire me. When she was something like what, when she was seven years old, she was preaching, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Amazing. I I and I remember when um when she died, I remember getting a. I remember when Nana and Grandpa were telling me the story because she died with um, her daughter Ginny, who's my great aunt. She, they were in the, they were at the hospital in only in New York. I remember Nana and Grandpa telling me that even as Nana was in the waiting room of the hospital, before she went into the hospital and would never leave again, she was preaching to the people in the waiting room and witnessing to them. And I thought that was just the coolest thing. And, yeah, and a, cool and a testament to like, you know, this is what I should strive for, which I think is, I mean, I, she's incredible. She's absolutely my role model and the best friend I've ever had. Yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing. We, we were talking about, uh, we were talking earlier about what happened in Vegas the other night and, um, and how terrible that was and certainly how depraved someone to, uh, to do what that man did. And I had a chance to be in Boston just a, a couple of months ago with my brother, Tom. And we walked by this church in Boston, one of the older churches in Boston. It's actually right near a, a statue of, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I think mm-hmm. almost, almost across the street. And Tom pointed to that church. He said, do you remember the story that Nana used to tell about that church? And I said, man, Nana has told lots of stories about a lot of different churches. Uh, you know, as a, as a child evangelist from the time, like you said, she was seven years old and really never quitting that, uh, that profession, if you will, until she died in her nineties. Uh, she had lots of stories to tell about preaching, to uh, derelicts and homeless men and folks who were at their wits end, you know. And uh, But I do remember the story. As he told it, I just didn't know that it was there. There was a time that she went into this church and she was preaching to a bunch of uh, homeless men. And for five cents, they would be able to walk into this church and they could get a meal and what they called a flop, which is basically a newspaper for them to sleep on after the after the service was over. And so for five, for, for a nickel, they could get a hot meal and a flop so that they could have a place to sleep that night. And she was at the podium and she was preaching. And, uh, at one point during the service, this man walked up, sort of parted his part of the way through a bunch of people in the crowd. And he walked straight up to the altar. And while she was standing just a little higher than where he was, you know, she was on a little podium so that she could be seen. She was so small. He knelt down on his knee and he took a revolver out of his jacket pocket and he put it down on the podium at her feet. Hmm. And, and he looked up at her and he said, young lady, I walked in here tonight with every intention on killing myself. And the words that you just spoke will mean something to me for, for the rest of uh, the rest of my life. And he gave his life to Christ in that moment. And um, so there were Tom and I standing in Boston, mm. like 
pointing across the street at uh, at this place where that had happened so many years ago. And so, you know, obviously her memory is so, so alive for, for you and for me, Ryan, and how lucky we are to uh, to have her, you know, in our heritage. Absolutely. So. She, she was such a special lady. And I remember some funny stories with her, too. I remember Nicholas and I were playing, were playing hide and seek with her one time. And this was by the t- by this time this happened, she had moved into Nana and Grandpa's house, uh, and she was on oxygen. But she had this really long oxygen cord. Well, Nichols would cheat because Nana would go to hide, and Nichols would just follow her oxygen tube <laughs> from the from the, from the machine the and find her. Oldest trick in the book, yeah. Oldest trick in the book, but it's great. It was awesome. Seen it a hundred times. That is too funny. And she just had the most wonderful laugh and the biggest hugs. She always made sure you drank your milk. That is true. Yep. I 100% credit the fact that I've never in my life broken a bone to the fact that I chugged milk <laughs> when I lived, when I was with Nana all the time. She was a trip and there was nothing taboo about anything that she would ever say. I mean, I, had, I think I had been asked by her no less than a hundred times in my life if I had taken a good bowel movement that day. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. that's typical, right? Absolutely. That was a daily occurrence. Yeah, she would say, oh, honey, did you take a good BM? And, of course, you know, the answer was yes, because you and I drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) A lot of coffee and a lot of milk. And a lot of milk. It'll do it. That'll do it. Well, this is a great walk down memory lane. We went into this podcast with expectations to talk about Instagram and the fact that your mother and my grandmother is way more active on Facebook than either of us are. Um, (laughs) And we ended up talking about... Your career with the police, Las Vegas, Nana, and bowel movements. Yes, that so, was a good end cap. Yeah, I think we should end with the uh, with the bowel movement. Let's do that. I think so. All right, so um, Uncle Matt, I'm gonna put you on the spot here, but do you have any final thoughts for the podcast? Anything you want to leave everybody with? Hey, you know what? I'm so proud of you, Ryan. Uh, it's so cool to see you every time I do. Um, like I said, I. I I get to see you sort of evolve and you have evolved into a young man uh, that I'm proud to call my nephew. I'm so proud that, uh, that you've got this podcast going and that you're spreading positivity instead of negativity. And that is such a big thing. And, um, and especially that you are willing to share your faith in this, in this podcast. I think that's so awesome. Um, Man, I wish you all the best, and uh, and I'm looking forward to, to hanging out with you here the next couple of days. All right, all right. So uh, my final thought tonight is this, is that America is an incredible place. Uh, we had the greatest, uh, the largest, not greatest, there's nothing great about it, the largest mass shooting in our country's history uh, just a few days ago, and people responded immediately by banding together. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you believed in, who you liked politically, who you voted for, um, what you're into. People came together to save each other's lives. And that's what America is all about. It's all about setting aside our differences so that we can, so that we can work for the better, the betterment of, of the, of the, of the man next to us, the man, woman or child next to us. I think that's incredible. Uh, I love America. I'm wearing my American flag hat right now because nice. I'm pumped about America tonight. Um, and that's that, guys. You know, you and I may not agree on everything. Uh, we may disagree vehemently on everything. But at the end of the day, if I can help save your life or if you can help save mine, I have nothing but confidence that we as Americans will do that for each other. And that's uh, what makes 
America uh, the greatest nation to have ever existed. And that's me as a Greek saying that America is better than ancient Greece. So that that's meaningful, I think. America. America. All right, everybody. So for Uncle Matt, for myself, for everyone here at Can We Ramp, I want to thank you for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. I know there wasn't a Facebook Live this week. Sorry about that, but we had to FaceTime Uncle Matt in. But make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Leave a review. Uh, leave a rating on iTunes. That would be awesome. If you ever want to be a part of the podcast, remember you can get in touch with me um, at canbyrand at gmail.com. All those details are going to be in the description of this podcast. Good luck, everybody. Make good choices and don't do anything I wouldn't do twice. For all of us at Can We Rant, thank you, and I'll talk to you next week.